One answer right now, yes or no. We've watched those scenes many times over when a character is off, uh, offered a sudden life-changing opportunity. Their decision in the movie leads either to the saving of the world or their untimely death. 800 years before Christ's birth, the city of Nineveh found itself in a do-or-die situation. God sent them an urgent message. The people of Nineveh certainly didn't deserve it. The courier didn't want to deliver it. But the result was the greatest revival of all time. The entire city, everybody in this large city, turned to God and was saved. Here's how it happened. We begin in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Most of you are familiar with Jonah's story. Our focus tends to be uh, drawn to him and to the great fish, the storm on the sea. It's a thrilling drama, to be sure. But the Lord's focus throughout this situation was on the people of Nineveh. And so after the misadventure of chapters one and two, chapter three effectively opens with God saying, okay, let's start over. Let's try this again. Chapter three opens just like chapter one. Uh, It's just that chapters one and two were, were a problem. This wasn't just a second chance for the city of Nineveh. It was also a second chance for Jonah. And there's a lot of great devotional insights for us as Christians uh, looking at this aspect. Jonah was a believer uh, and a prophet, but just like us, he had his shortcomings. He wasn't perfect. He did not like Assyrians, and he did not like the idea of God helping Assyrians. But even though he had absolutely fantastically refused to obey God in chapter one, going as far as preferring to drown in the ocean rather than do what God asked him to do, the Lord was still willing to commune with Jonah, still willing even to use him for his heavenly purposes. That is a dramatic grace. This was the second time God was sending Jonah, right? We saw it chapter one and we see it here in chapter three. But notice, God didn't say, you know what a bad job you've been doing, right? Uh, He didn't say, you know you've really been a disappointment, so you you better make it up to me this time around. He doesn't at all. He just repeats what he said before to Jonah. He picks up as if chapters one and two hadn't even happened. God is gracious. And even though Jonah had failed and failed purposefully, and even though we know, as you know, readers of his whole book, we know that he still has some serious heart issues to work out, uh, there's no condemnation from the Lord, just commission. That doesn't mean God was happy about the way Jonah was acting. It's very obvious that he wasn't. He said, oh, no, 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 you are not going to sail to Tarshish. Uh, one way or another, you're, you're coming back this way. Uh, And we're going to do all kinds of things that are unpleasant for you until you are willing to submit yourself to what I'm asking you to do. Uh, But he didn't condemn Jonah. He commissioned him. Get up, go, and preach. And that's essentially our same commission today as imperfect yet commissioned messengers of God here on planet Earth, representatives of Christ, ambassadors for him. And we see here that God told Jonah to proclaim a very specific proclamation. He said, the message that I tell you, not something general, not something from Jonah's own 
you know, imagination, Jonah would have uh, some words to say to the Ninevites if he was the one writing the speech. But he says, the message that I tell you, Bible commentator Douglas Stewart writes, Jonah, in other words, is here commanded to say exactly and only what Yahweh will tell him to say. He is held to a tight leash in terms of his verbal freedom. Why was that? Well, one reason is because God's message, his gospel, is the power of God to salvation. The content of our preaching, of our message, really matters. Our job as representatives of Jesus Christ, as messengers of the gospel, our job is to deliver God's word, his message, his gospel, God's truth to a lost and dying world. Not our own philosophies, not our own opinions, not our own ideas about life and goodness and society and all of that. We're supposed to deliver the gospel as it has been delivered to us, once for all delivered. His word has power, not our ideas. doesn't mean all of our ideas are bad, but if we're trying to go into a world that needs saving, the equipment we bring is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not our own spin on morality, not our own ideas about this, that, or the other thing. We bring the gospel. That content matters. Verse three, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So Jonah obeyed, and his obedience led to great spiritual fruit. It matters when we obey God, and it matters when we disobey him. Jonah's disobedience almost led to his own death, but it also almost led to the ruin and death of all of the guys he was sailing with, if you remember that, that fantastic scene there. I mean, their ship is gonna go down. But his obedience is gonna lead to life for many, many people. And so we recognize that God is gracious and that God is in charge and God's will will be done, but our obedience or disobedience matters. It matters in your life. It matters in your family. It matters in your community. It matters in ways that ripple out through human history that we really have no idea of. It matters whether we're honoring God, whether we're following God, whether we're obeying God, and it matters when we don't do those things. What, is it, what does it mean when it says Nineveh was a three-day walk? Ancient history tells us that the circumference of the sort of greater Nineveh area, including outlying villages and territories, was about 60 miles. Of course, back then, cities and, and towns were different than they are now. The city, even larger ones, were, was, a, was like a fortress, right? For when the enemy armies came, war was all about siege and was all about long battle. And so, you know, people, these farmers and, and ranchers and things, they would live out around the city and all these other lands where their, where their cattle could graze and they could grow crops and those sorts of things. And then you would go into the city to conduct business or when you needed a refuge, you would flee into the city when the enemy army came. And so, you know, Nineveh was a large city, but we're talking about the greater area. We think of this in, sort of, in the terms of like large cities and the suburbs around it, but... Um, it's, it's a 60-mile uh, circumference. To give us some perspective on that, if Hanford was Nineveh, then the, the circumference we're talking about would go um, as far as Corcoran to the south, past LNAS in the west, Fowler-Kingsburg in the north, Visalia to the east. 
It's a pretty big area. It's like 19 miles in every direction. Uh, that's possibly what is meant here by a three-day walk. And so it's possible it was that large of an area. It also might mean that it just took Jonah three days to sort of snake through neighborhood to neighborhood of the city, preaching as he went, sort of a three-day circuit around the city, rather than just a three-day walk if he was trying to run a marathon and you know walk from one end of the city to the next. And so that's what's going on here. But Nineveh was a large and very powerful city. It had a population somewhere between conservative estimate of 600,000 people upwards to a million people. And this city, though, was at the end of God's long-suffering rope. They had one last chance. The fish, we learned in, the, in chapter one, the, the great fish had been prepared for Jonah and received him gladly for three days. The question now would be, is the city of Nineveh willing to receive Jonah during his three-day visit within their walls? His three days in the belly of Nineveh, will they receive him? One answer, right now, yes or no. That's the, the scene being set. There's a piece of language that's easy for us to miss in English translations. We read Nineveh was an extremely great city. Bible linguists point out that literally the phrase is a city important to God. And that's absolutely true. It was a great city but it was also a city important to God. Around here, if we're honest, we don't think much of the great cities of the world. I, I put great in quotation marks there. We're disgusted by the decay and the lechery and the lawlessness of places like San Francisco, New York City. We scoff as we see the terrible things that happen on the news and we say, yeah, that's what happens in cities like that. And it, it kind of is a, an odor to us and we think, oh, I don't wanna go up to that city. I don't want to go there. I'm so glad I don't live there. I'd venture to say that on some level, right, we, we tend to feel toward those places much like Jonah felt toward Nineveh. Meanwhile, God says, you know, Nineveh is an important city to me. Really? They're your enemy. They're our enemy. They don't care about you at all. They blaspheme you. They do terrible things, terrible things to their own bodies, terrible things to others, terrible things at every level. And God says, yeah, they're important to me. Why? Because he loved the people in those cities. He didn't love their sins that they committed. He didn't love the culture that they had created, but he loved those people. And just like today, he was not willing that any of them should perish, but perish they must if they stayed in their sin. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to the repentance. But for those who reject his free offer of salvation, those who refuse to turn from their sin, well then, perish they must. But what an amazing revelation that God was personally concerned for Nineveh, personally concerned for the Ninevites as a group and as individuals, concerned enough to send them an ambassador, concerned enough to unleash a storm on the Mediterranean Sea when that ambassador didn't want to go do his job. And he says, well, I'm going to make and send a storm so that you can't escape what I'm asking you to do. Concerned enough to prepare this great fish who would swallow a man yet not kill him. Swallow him before the waves did. Concerned enough to suffer long with very unlovely people. The Lord was very concerned with them. Nineveh belonged to God. They were wayward, yes, lost, about to be consumed. But he wanted them back. 
He wanted them in his embrace. He wanted them alive. Verse four says, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Seven words, maybe eight in your translation. In fact, in Hebrew, it's just five words are, are all that's recorded here. Now, he probably said more. In fact, we were given good indication that he did say more, but, but as people came out and conversed with him and asked what he's about and who he is and where he's from, but it's a very straightforward message. His main message, five words. You've got a very short time, and then you're going to be destroyed, demolished. That word demolished, which you may have as overthrown, it's an interesting word. Commentators point out that it's a word that means turned or overturned. In this context, it definitely speaks of destruction, but, but this word is also sometimes used with the idea of transformation, a turning, a, a changing, right? And so it's an interesting play on this interesting word. One way or another, in a few days, Nineveh would be changed. They would be turned either to dust or turned to disciples. One answer right now, yes or no. That's still the choice today, by the way, death or deliverance. Human life can only take one of two turns. Maybe you've heard the old preacher adage, turn or burn. <laughs> it's harsh, but on some level it's true. Turn or be overturned, that's the option. Death or discipleship. Death is what we deserve. Death is what we've earned for our sins. God gives us a lifeline. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll pull you out of the grave. I'll pull you out of death. But I'm not gonna force you. Here's your choice. Death or discipleship. Turn or be turned. Verse five, then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. I was thinking about this. Sometimes, you know, as believers, you know, we believe God, we love God, we wanna follow God, we study his word, all of those things, but that doesn't mean that our hearts are always soft. It doesn't mean that we're, we have no room for improvement. Of course we do. We fall short. We still need to make sure our hearts aren't hardening before the Lord, and I thought it was interesting. It took Jonah three days to call out to God from the belly of the fish, and the Ninevites responded on the very first day. The very first day they said, oh man, we believe and we wanna to turn to this God. The book wants us to see the universal nature of God's salvation. Anyone can be saved. Not everyone is going to be saved, which is the greatest tragedy of human history. But anyone can be saved. Anyone can be forgiven. God's offer is for anyone who is willing to believe. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This was not just ancient San Francisco. As Jonah walked through the city gates that day, it is very possible, maybe even probable, that he walked past prisoners who had been impaled alive on pikes and left to rot. One of the kings of Assyria had a habit of putting his enemies on display at the city gate, chained to a wild bear that would slowly devour them. That was Monday night football for the Assyrians. That's, that, that's what the Ninevites found interesting. That's what was normal for them. They did all kinds of things, the unspeakably, horribly brutal things to their enemies. They reveled in it. 
they found in, in archaeology that the palaces of the Assyrian rulers, they would decorate their walls with images of the things that they did to their enemies, flaying people alive, uh, displaying their skin, making pyramids of heads of their enemies. That's who we're talking about. Uh, this is, these are the people that God said, oh, I'm concerned about this city, and I love them, and they're important to me. Even these people could be saved. And all of them would be, from the king all the way down to the lowliest slave. The entire city believed. Not only that they believed intellectually, we see they had a living faith. It, it was active. It moved them. It, it caused them to stop and to pivot and to change their behavior. They called this fast. They put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was the clothing worn by the poor, by prisoners, by slaves, those in mourning. And so it showed that they understood the guilt that they were under. They understood what they had done wrong. They wanted to change, but they said, we're slaves, we're prisoners, we're undone. What do we do? We are at the mercy of this God that has been introduced to us. I'm putting on sackcloth. I'm in mourning for who I am and what I've done. I'm putting on sackcloth. I'm a slave to your will. I'm putting on sackcloth. I'm a prisoner, a prisoner of my sin unless someone intervenes on my behalf. Now, the book does something else that we might not see in the English translation. When we see God and Jonah interacting, the Lord is referred to there. You might see in your Bible, it's the Lord, all capitalized. And so when it's God and Jonah interacting, he's referred to by his name Yahweh. When it's the Ninevites speaking of or interacting with God, they believed in Elohim. Why, why does that matter? Well, well, Elohim is a more general term. It's used of a variety of heavenly beings, God, Yahweh, is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is God, Yahweh. But there are, in the Bible, uh, different types of Elohims, heavenly beings. The point is that these people, they didn't know everything about the Lord. They didn't know God's name, not on day one. They didn't know everything Jonah knew. They didn't know all the stories of, of his faithfulness or his work through the people of Israel or the law of Moses or all of these other very important details. They didn't know those things, but they knew enough to be saved. The Lord doesn't make people complete the SAT before allowing them into salvation. Now, once you're saved, what was Ephesians all about? Paul's like, okay, you're in salvation, you're in Christ, and now I hope it's my prayer every single day that you would grow in your knowledge and understanding and that you would dedicate yourself to study and the, and, the, and the internalizing of God's word and the application of God's word. But you don't have to memorize the encyclopedia before you get saved. What did the tax collector, the publican, pray in the gospels? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He acknowledges who God is. He acknowledges that God is willing to show mercy. He acknowledges that he's a sinner. And that's the prayer of the Ninevites, effectively. Have mercy on us. We are guilty. And we are appealing to you to do what only you can do. Verse six, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. So the king here is probably not the king of Assyria, the empire. 
uh, it, it was just the ruler of the city. Uh, the king, the, what we would know as the kings of Assyria didn't actually use the title to king. And so he's the ruler of the city. He makes this decree. Everybody was already doing it. Right? Jonah didn't go and speak to him. Word spread through the people. And this was already happening. But he says, okay, but, but I want to make this official. He was genuinely convicted of sin and turning to God. You've seen this trope, too, where, you know, the mayor or the ruler or whoever, he, like, is in the crowd, and the crowd sees the hero do something, and they're all cheering for him, and then he grudgingly starts clapping. He's mad about it, you know, but he doesn't want to not fit in. That's not what's happening here. No, he believes, too. And, and we see the activity. We see that, in, in a sense, he even stepped further. He's coming off of his throne, and he didn't just wear sackcloth. He said, I'm gonna go sit in ashes, right? That's a new layer of, of, of confession and repentance that we hadn't seen before. And he didn't just fast. He extended the fast to the animals. I had never thought about this before. I've heard of lipstick on a pig. I've never heard of sackcloth on a pig. Some of you, you know, maybe dress up your dog in little outfits from time to time, or some of you, you know, you have dogs that get cold and you, you put on like a little sweater for them. Okay, that's fine. I'm not sure how you keep farm animals covered in sackcloth. This is a job. Uh, you know, the animals are like, what, what are we doing here? Yeah, you're wearing sackcloth now. I'm not wearing any sackcloth. Where's my feed? Where's my water? But man, they were, these Ninevites were serious. Everything in life stopped. No commerce, no games, no training. The entire city shut down and turned their attention to repentance and to this God whose name they didn't even know. It was a corporate action, but we also see the king pointing out the need for individual responsibility. What does he say there? Each must turn from his evil ways. And what we see uh, throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but it's still true today, is that God works with nations, blessing them or judging them, raising them up, putting them down. But at the same time, salvation is always an individual transaction between God and each individual person. So it wasn't enough that it was like, well, as long as we get 50% plus one Ninevites, we'll be good. I mean, the, the, the king of Nineveh understood. He's like, no, this is for every single one of us. No one's skating here. No one can be saved because the, the neighbor next to them did the thing. It's like every single one of us needs to turn from our sin and every single one of us needs to call out to God. It doesn't seem like God was doing that Abraham agreement from the book of Genesis. Remember, he was gonna go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham got, this, got the Lord to agree to this this, this sort of boundary, he said, hey, if I find 10 people, 10 righteous people in the whole city, I'll spare the whole city. You know, we could say all for one, one for all. is like, okay, 10 for one. All for 10, 10 for all, right? And so he said, but that doesn't seem to be happening here. It's like, no, 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 everybody. This is, this is about everybody. This is about each individual person. This it was a moment of choice for every single Ninevite in the city. How long did the fast go on? You know, sometimes we wonder, like, well, how long w was this actually playing out? Like, for example, you know, one thing I hadn't thought about before is, you know, once Jonah was barfed up on the shore by the great fish, it probably took him weeks just to walk to Nineveh. And then he had to go do all of this thing. But how long was this fast going on? 
especially because it's a no water fast. What's happening here? It's an interesting difference in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. I'm not saying this is for sure what it should be, but it's interesting. There, in the Septuagint version of Jonah 3, it says that Jonah said three days, not 40 days, and, and Nineveh will be demolished. If that is what Jonah said, it would make sense because a no water fast can last three days. And after three days without water, the average human is gonna die probably. It's about as long as you can go. But it would illustrate the absolute dedication and sincerity of their repentance, right? If the message was in three days, you're going to be judged and destroyed, in a sense, it's like they responded and said, okay, well, one way or another, we're gonna live out this three days. We're willing to show you that we're so dependent on your mercy that we will forfeit our lives at your feet. We're not gonna drink any water and we'll see what happens at the end of three days. It could have been that. Either way, three days, 40 days, this is a very dramatic scene. Imagine the noise of the animals, if you can, hungry animals, thirsty animals, animals who don't understand what's happening, braying and lowing and pawing against the boards. We have our dog, Ellie. I love her so much. (laughs) Big 95-pound Great Pyrenees, and she's just a sweetheart in my mind. And so she is. She's a sweetie, but she has this bad habit right now. Uh, that when she wants to go out, she knows that she's supposed to just sit and then we let her out. She absolutely knows. But instead, she likes to just go up and go bap, 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 bap on the slider, just over and over, just hitting, 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 hitting. And that's enough. Like, it's loud and it's annoying. Okay, now your entire herd of cattle haven't had water in two days, haven't had food in two days, and you keep having to go out there and put sackcloth on them. This is, this, is a, this is a real thing. It's a dramatic scene. Verse nine, the king finishes up his little decree there. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They were sincere, but they didn't know what was gonna happen. They didn't. Who knows, he said. It's like David when he was being judged for his sin with Bathsheba. He says, hey, who, they say, what are you doing? He says, hey, who knows? The Lord said this is gonna happen, but who knows, if I fall on his mercy, maybe the child will survive. And same thing here, these guys knew even less than David did, less about the character of God, less about the nature of God, less about God's track record, all those sort of things. Who knows? Let's take a chance on this Elohim guy and see if maybe he'll show us some mercy. Now, why would they think that God is merciful? Their gods certainly weren't. They certainly weren't. They didn't like mercy as a culture or anything like that. Why would they think this God would be merciful? I was thinking, why stay and wait to see if he would be merciful rather than just get out of town? Get in a chariot and leave. Instead, they say, we're gonna stay and we're gonna see if God is merciful. And I think the reason why they thought God might be merciful is given to us in the Gospel of Luke. We're told in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11 that Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna be a sign to you like Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh. And so he didn't just preach the five-word message to them. He himself was a sign. A sign of what? Well, if he told them his story, he's a sign of God's mercy and grace. He would have said, yeah, I would have been here like you know a month ago, 
except for that I refused to obey. I refused to come here because, well, let's not talk about why I didn't come here before, but here's what happened. I disobeyed my God directly on purpose, but God in his mercy and compassion and his grace, he gave me a second chance. I'm still his representative. I'm still his prophet. I'm still his ambassador and and messenger. We Christians are called to be living witnesses of God's grace and mercy so that the people around us who are trapped in sin can understand that there's grace available for them too. That Christ offers real hope, real restoration, a real refuge for those who are in need. And so if a Christian church or a Christian person or a Christian family, if we are coming across to the lost world around us as ungracious, uncompassionate, unloving, it's a problem because we are to be a sign of God's loving, merciful, affectionate compassion that he has for even the Ninevites. Who knows? Well, Jonah knew. He knew personally. He knew not only from his history, you know, being an Israelite, but he knew personally that God was merciful. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew God would be merciful if they called out for mercy. To his credit, it seems that Jonah communicated that idea to these pagans who were then willing to take a chance on it being true. Verse 10, God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways and so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with and he did not do it. God can forgive anyone. He wants to forgive everyone. He can't pretend we haven't done evil He's not a God of compromise, but he is a God of compassion. This is what God wanted all along. That's why he sent Jonah, because he wanted Nineveh to be saved. He wanted Nineveh to realize that they were far from him and to turn back toward him so that he would not have to judge them for all their wickedness. They deserved death. They deserved judgment, just like we all do. And God says, but I love you, and I don't want you to go into that judgment without my covering. I wanna take it for you so that you can receive my life, so that you can live and not die. Jonah, he knew this was true, and he will angrily say in chapter four, I know you, I knew it. I knew you were gonna be a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, and I'm mad about it because I hate these people. And God's like, yeah, that's the point. I love these people. You hate them. You're supposed to walk away from your hate and take on my love. That's what's supposed to happen. The Lord wants to deliver people. He wants to deliver cities and even nations because he loves them, because they are precious in his sight. The Ninevites did not convince God not to destroy them. They did not purchase their salvation with these acts of piety. They received the mercy that God extended to them as a free gift. Do you want it? Yes, we want it. Okay, then have it. That was the transaction. Here's how they received it. First, we saw they believed God, right? We saw that there, right after Jonah's preaching, he said, the Ninevites believed God. You are saved, anyone is saved by grace through faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then we see in the king's words that after they believed God, two things happened. 
They called out to God and they turned from their sin. He says that, he says, hey, we believe this is gonna happen, we need help, call out to God and everybody turn from their sin. And so if a person actually believes the message of the gospel, if they actually believe God is who he says and is going to do what he says he's going to do, then those are the natural byproducts. That is the result, calling out to him and turning from sin. Psalm 91 tells us that those who call on the Lord will be saved. And to turn to God means that we are turning away from sin, turning away from idols, and trusting him, and then receiving all he's offered, that offer of rescue and transformation and all the rest. And so they did not earn this salvation. They didn't buy it. They didn't merit it. They just believed. And that belief created activity in their hearts and lives. This chapter is an example of what is still true today. Jeremiah, the prophet, tells us that God still announces judgments on wicked nations, but that if those nations will turn from their evil, he will relent from bringing disaster. If they won't, he won't. It's a very simple arrangement. And the individual situation is also the same. Maybe the modern Ninevite has more than three days before judgment, more than 40 days before judgment, but there is a number. There is a number, X days and then destruction. Maybe it's 1,000, maybe it's 10,000. But one day, the offer of salvation from this merciful God will expire and judgment will fall. And those people who refuse to accept Christ's covering will have nowhere to hide and no protection from the wrath that is due them? One answer right now, yes or no. For all of us, Jonah 3 is a reminder that God has called to us. The God of heaven and earth has called down to us. First calls to us to be saved. Second calls us to be commissioned in his service. But he calls to us and we must respond to him. And as we respond to him, he responds back again to us. As we draw near to him, he draws near to us and it's just this cycle that keeps going that he's calling and speaking, we respond and then he calls and speaks again and, and, and we develop this relationship as he walks with us and abides with us and communes with us. This moment of faith in Jonah 3 brought the people of Nineveh a hundred years of grace, a hundred years, a century of life when they should have been dead. What might my faith, my repentance, my obedience, my trust in the Lord bring for my family, my community, my nation?